content is the currency of digital marketing, content marketing, obviously. We could say the same thing about influencer marketing, about social media marketing. Content is central to everything we do in digital. But we don't talk enough about how we go about actually creating more creative and compelling content. Well, today I have the foremost expert on teaching how to go about doing exactly that. But you'll have to listen in on this next episode of the Your Digital Marketing Coach podcast to find out the details. Digital, social media, content influencer, marketing, blogging, podcasting, vlogging, TikToking, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, SEO, SEM, PPC, email marketing. Whew. There's a lot to cover. Whether you're a marketing professional, entrepreneur, or business owner, you need someone you can rely on for expert advice. Good thing you've got Neil on your side. Because Neil Schaefer is your, your digital, digital marketing, marketing coach. coach. Helping you grow your business with digital first marketing, one episode at a time. This is your digital marketing coach, and this is Neil Schaefer. Hey, everybody. Neil Schaefer here. I am your digital marketing coach, and welcome to my podcast. For those that are new here, this podcast encompasses the entire spectrum of everything digital, right? Because digital marketing is not just digital marketing. It's SEO, it's content marketing, it's influencer marketing, it's social media marketing, it's paid media, it's blogging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So every week, either through a guest of mine or through my own experience with customers or thoughts as I also create my own content, I look for topics and ideas and people that I think can not only inspire you, but inspire me as well. Well, today I finally had a chance to do a one-on-one -on -one with a very, very special guest that I will shortly introduce who really is one of these, you know, handful of experts on content. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into the interview because I talk about the story of how I found out about her, how our careers sort of intersected over the last decade, but um, the respect that I have for her and everything that you're going to learn in this episode. I'm so excited for this. Let's just jump right into my interview with the one and only Melanie Diesel. You're listening to your digital marketing coach. This is Neil Schaefer. Hey, everybody. Create compelling content. There is no one that I think, no one more appropriate to talk about the subject than today's guest, Melanie Diesel. So Melanie may not remember and probably doesn't know the second story, but I want to share before I bring her on stage and have her introduce herself. I knew Melanie, boy, I want to say it was like eight years ago. I ran a conference called the Social Tool Summit. And there were a bunch of people that we reached out to to be speakers. Melanie was one who reached out to us. Melanie, I believe at the time, and you'll have to respond when you get on stage, you were uh, working at Time Magazine, I believe. The event was in Boston. You were going to make it, and then you couldn't make it. I forgot what happened. And I didn't have a chance to meet you, but you were going to be on our content marketing panel. So it's like, huh, I always had that name in my head. And then fast forward, Social Media Marketing World 2020. I am there. I just came out with the age of influence. In fact, it was a few weeks before publishing the age of influence. So I brought like 20 copies. Like I'm going to hand these out and build some buzz. And guess what? Everybody at social media marketing world was carrying this book 
that said content fuel, right? I'm like, what, what's going on here? And it was Melanie Diesel. She out growth hacked me. She out buzzed me <laughs> at social media marketing world because everybody had a copy of the content fuel framework book in their hand. Everybody was already reading it. Even though I did not get to meet Melanie personally until I bring her on stage right now. She is someone that's been deep, deep in my mind as being one of these content marketing experts that I really wanted to tap into, not only for your education, but also for my own education. So without further ado, Melanie, that's my Melanie Diesel stories. Welcome to the, I don't know how many of those you remember, but that's amazing. Definitely social media marketing where we never met, but I felt we were probably one person away from brushing <laughs> shoulders there. We definitely were. Well, first of all, I feel you on launching a book right before the pan, right around the pandemic, because that was certainly a challenge. Um, I think the only reason I had more buzz is my book launch was literally that day. So there was oh. a book signing. So it was like a, it was a whole thing, but you know, two days later we were on lockdown. So <laughs> Exactly. It was such a weird, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times and no one could have predicted it. And, uh, <laughs> but, but very well done. So Melanie, I want to, I want to give you the put, I already hinted at sort of the, your past and, you know, you have this very, very unique and refreshing view about content that I know a lot of marketers, I know a lot of businesses that, that just love. So I, I want to find out more about Melanie and what brought you to this point in your life where you wrote two books about content marketing. I'm wondering how far to start, how far back I should start, but uh, I come to the world of marketing by way of journalism. So I never intended to be a marketer. I didn't study to be a marketer. Um, and I like to joke that I'm just doing journalism and no one really knows. Uh, I basically have taken all the best practices that I learned training to be a journalist, all the tools, all the, uh, you know, the sort of ethics and, and editorial conscience, if you will, from the journalism side of things and brought that over to marketing. So I did that at the Huffington Post, where I helped them build their first brand storytelling team. The same thing at the New York Times. I was their first ever editor of branded content. And then, as you mentioned, I was at Time Incorporated most recently, and I was working as director of creative strategy for content programs across all 35 of the U.S. magazines, including Time. But since then, I sort of have set out on my own. It's going to be almost 10 years now. Set out on my own to to keep teaching this stuff, to keep, you know, help hopefully get to reach more folks. And I think probably that situation where I couldn't make it to the event was probably my day job uh, interfering. And so now I have the privilege of this being my day job where I get to talk about content all the time. So we saw this big, you being a, a former journalist, we saw obviously with the advent of the internet, well, everybody basically going electric and going digital. Yeah. That there were a lot of journalists that were sort of fighting for jobs. I, I know oh, yeah. some of them went to content marketing. Some of them might not have. What drove you to go from journalism? I guess you already had the experience with branded content. So maybe it was an easy move for you. But what made you go? I mean, you're sort of, I'm not saying going to the dark side, but journalism <laughs> and then corporate America. Yeah. It's sort of the dark side, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What brought you to, to make that decision? It was purely opportunistic. So um, I had gone back to grad school, uh, studied arts and cultural criticism, again, still expecting to fully to get into journalism uh, and continue on that path. And that was exactly right around the time when all these newsrooms were downsizing. They were, you know, getting rid of jobs. Everything was going digital and revenue was plummeting. So I had been working with a couple of recruiters who were trying to get me into an editorial role. And one of them had the, uh, the foresight to say, hey, you know, this is sort of a business marketing role, but I think that your skill set is well aligned. What do you think? Uh, and that was the Huffington Post job. So managed to get in there 
And, you know, it's always a combination of, you know, I don't mean to discount my talents and the hard work that I did, but it's also a bit of a timing thing. You know, this was the early days of, of native advertising as sort of a, a buzzword. And so I came in at a really good time when there weren't many experts to compete with. So having been done it for only a year, you know, at that point, I was one of the experts. There weren't that many of us. So it was kind of a, a combination of good timing and, and uh, foresight by that recruiter. And then when you came in, I suppose when you decided to go on your own, yeah, you were, I'm assuming, offering, I don't know if you were a content marketing agency, content marketing consultant, a little bit of both. Yeah. What role did you play that, because going out on your own is another huge decision, going from journalism to the dark side, and then on your own, uh, attacking the dark side. <laughs> so what was the original sort of business model, I suppose, that, that brought yeah. you to go solo? So I think it was a it was a combination of things. I was doing a fair amount of speaking and, you know, with the exception of COVID, have continued to do that. So that's always been part of my revenue since I stepped out on my own. But I was at the time doing a ton of consulting. So consulting was sort of the main source of income. And it was mostly, truthfully, folks that I had worked with on the corporate side who, when finding out that I was out on my own, wanted to kind of continue to work with me as well. So was very blessed to have, you know, sort of a pipeline of, of awesome clients already built in through the work that I was doing. And and then over time, you know, I sort of had to expand because I was very native advertising is not talked about as much as it was then, but it was sort of seen as separate from branded content. So I had to broaden my expertise and positioning uh, and then broaden it out further to content marketing to make sure that I wasn't pigeonholed as just, you know, that person who helps you do brand content on a media site. Got it. That that makes a lot of sense. So fast forward to 2020, and I'm assuming you know you work with a major publisher. You probably wrote the book in 2019, like I wrote my book. Yep. So what brought you then to write a book? Um, and I'm assuming that, like many great authors, that content fuel framework was based on like the decade of work that you were already doing that you put a structure around to share with everybody, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So that the basically what's in content fuel framework um, is is pretty much exactly what I had been teaching in corporate workshops up to that point. So the biggest issue that I found, at least in the clients I was talking to at the time, was I don't know what to post. We're running out of new things to say. It feels like we're telling the same stories over and over. I really had to do, I, I joke, but like some soul searching because truthfully, coming from journalism, it had never occurred to me to think of content as like a, a non-renewable resource. Like there's always more stories to tell. You've got another paper tomorrow or another website update later on today. So I had to really think what's happening in my head when I'm you know, rolling this out when I'm coming up with ideas. And that's pretty much uh, what I put into Content Fuel Framework. So the content was all in here already. I just had to put it to paper. <laughs> So, you know, we're not going to go an hour. Well, I don't know how long will last it, half an hour, hour, whatever, but we're not going to go that long without the topic of AI coming into the conversation. And I was on a webinar this morning. It, it was like 17 minutes in and I was the first one out of four panelists to throw it out there. And I'm going to throw it out now. And I know we're going to fast forward a little bit to maybe something we were going to talk about later, but obviously I'm assuming you would agree. One of the amazing things about AI and chat GPT is the ideation that can come from it. And I'm of the field that even with my, my high school children, they should understand the tool and how to utilize it in to, to make their work even better. Right. And I think the ideation is, is so crucial. So I'm curious with content fuel framework and with, you know, chat GPT ideation, is this like, is this the perfect 
combination? Um, what's your sort of take on that and how it fits into the work you've done until now? That's a really good question. And nobody has asked me that yet. So I think I have to think more on what? that. Nobody has really? a, yeah, nobody's asked me that. Okay, I'm not going to take names, but we'll talk no. about it. <laughs> but <laughs> what, I, what I will say is before all the chat GPT stuff kind of rose to the top, I was working with an AI company kind of trying to figure out how could we turn the content field framework into an interactive interface so that people could put in some parameters and then using the system from the book to kind of spit out some options. So Very cool. I think that it can be a total natural partner. I think I have some some skepticism around ChatGPT just as a journalist really focused on accuracy and sourcing and, and plagiarism and all of that um, gives me a little bit of concern, but I think it's a great starting point. And if you're starting from a blank slate, at least you have something to build on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So a uh, content fuel framework comes out, you know, the queen of buzz at social media marketing world, you know, bestseller, Obviously, the speaking turns virtual, mm-hmm. but you beat me to the punch with, with the next book. I'm still writing mine. So so then I, I'm looking at Melanie and, and I'm like, whoa, you know, she's she's written another one. Prove it. So what was the I'm assuming that part of Prove It might have been a reaction to what happened during COVID as as my book is turning out to be as well. What brought you to to write that book and how is it differentiated from Content Fuel Framework? So interesting. I had not actually considered it a a response to the pandemic, but more so a response to the response of the first book. So what I found is that when folks were like, okay, now I have 100, 200 ideas, like, where do I start? What do I focus on? What's most important for my business? And my answer was always some version of like, what does your audience need to believe about you? Or what's the biggest gap between what you want your audience to believe and what they do believe? And then the content that kind of feeds that. So really like the concepts within Prove It, really talking about how you can use the content as a tool to earn your audience trust. I think you're totally right that trust is definitely at an all-time low and you know the pandemic and and things like chat GPT and AI uh, have partially contributed to that, you know, that we see just skepticism is on the rise and trust is is on the downfall. So it seems like the right time to be talking about, you know, building audience trust as sort of our primary KPI. So before we get to that, I want to put on the skeptics hat that says, Melanie, we're spending all this money on content. What's yeah. the ROI of this? How do you respond to that CEO or or the CMO? You're brought in by someone more junior and yeah. they aren't bought into it yet. I'm assuming by now most are bought in, but there's always those outliers. So I'm just curious, of, have you ever had that situation? How do you respond to that? Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, sometimes depending on the client, sometimes I'll be sassy a little bit and I'll say, well, what's the ROI of your social media? And they give an answer. And I say, well, content is very similar in that regard. And content is what's fueling your social media. Taking the Gary Vaynerchuk route, huh? What's the ROI of your mom? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) But I think more often I just allude to the fact that content as a product really seeps into everything we do. So we believe there's ROI of email. So we need content for that email. We believe in the ROI of social. We need content for social. We believe in the ROI of webinars and eBooks and all these other things. And we need content to live inside of those things. So it's less of a separate entity and more of a fuel for everything else that you're doing that we already have proven ROI on. I know there are some folks out there who have done the studies and shown the ROI of specific content, but being that it's not my studies, I tend not to not to quote those things just to err on the side of my own expertise. It really is the currency of, of you know, digital marketing, isn't it? So yeah. I couldn't agree more. I want to uh, talk, you had mentioned about Prove It and trust as being this main KPI. And before this interview, you talked about, you know, understanding the importance of using content 
as evidence for business claims. So yeah. I actually have a, I'm a fractional CMO. So I'm, I'm you know, marketing consultant for a few companies. So one of my clients is a nutritional uh, supplements brand, but they actually create all their products in conjunction with an R&D facility at a university, public university, nice. right? Yeah. So all of our language and messaging and content is all very scientific that this is so I totally get what you're I'm just curious when you're not in that where you need that scientific yeah. proof you know what is why is that so important and then how can a company where it's not life critical it doesn't affect your health you know do they all need to be scientific or what what is sort of the formula there yeah so the vast majority of proof is actually not scientific at least when we're talking about it in terms of building trust through content um that's what i would call sort of documentation is uh, a type of proof where you're bringing in studies or you know reputable processes and kind of showing behind the scenes of how that technically uh is safe in this case but there's lots of other ways that you can do that that don't involve science studies massive amounts of resources at all so the first one is corroborating your claims is just looking to say who are the experts or witnesses of this claim that could back it up so if you're talking about you know we deliver on time you know look to your past clients to talk about how you deliver on time that's perfect you know that's adding proof it's third party credibility adding to the pile so experts and witnesses corroborating what you're saying is is a really good way to approach it especially if you're starting out and you don't have a ton of resources to delve into the the bigger more scientific proof that that makes a lot of sense and i suppose some of it is you know if you say you're on time actually survey your customers get the data nine or 10 customers say, we're, I, I don't know, is that sort of one of the approaches? It could be. Yeah, absolutely. So right in the beginning of the book, I, I mentioned like, hey, if you're lying, then like this isn't going to work for you. This only works if you're actually delivering on these promises. I'm not going to help you prove this isn't going to help you prove things that aren't true. But basically, the process is looking at all the promises that you're making, the expectations that you're setting, your guarantees and saying, OK, what are those and are we providing adequate proof? And this comes from the world of journalism where we say show, don't tell. It's one thing to tell the audience something. It's another thing to show them, to let them kind of come to their own conclusion by putting forth that evidence. So it's that same kind of mindset of saying, okay, well, what is it that we're trying to tell our audience that we deliver on time or we treat you like family or, uh, you know, that our product is gluten-free. So how do we go about providing more details that they can see or hear or, you know, consume some other way that would help them believe this and not have to just take our word for it? So I see how that's part sort of content fuel framework in terms of ideation, but also execution in making sure that the messaging is aligned with that. Yeah, I would say Prove It is more of a strategic book in comparison. Content fuel framework is super, super tactical, like not a line of fluff, really just to help you walk through that process of idea generation. Whereas Prove It is more about the mindset. How do we select the content that's going to best suit our overall business goal, uh, which either is or should be building this trusting relationship? So it's not about, I mean, obviously we, we think of traditional digital marketing concepts like SEO. It's not about like keywords, but it's about if there are certain keywords that you talk about that trust is important in order to build that relationship with prospects and with your customers, then you'll want to lean into those. But when you lean into them, you're not going to write some chat GPT generated AI content, but it's going to be all about how to prove it. How do we, how do we build trust? How do we prove that we do what that keyword indicates we do. Is that sort of the, the mindset? Exactly. There? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's less about SEO and ranking, although certainly that should be part of your broader strategy as well, but really around, you know, 
giving an example of sort of search, if you are perhaps the only one in your category or one of few in your category, your competitive set that has one characteristic, maybe that your products are made with recycled products, right? You're, you're more eco-friendly. Um, then you might be looking to focus on some of those keywords to make sure that if folks are looking for an eco-friendly or a green solution, they're going to come to you. As part of that, though, you're going to want to make sure that the content that contains those keywords is actually showing how you are green, eco-friendly, recycled, like show how that is true because anyone can slap a keyword onto a product description. Anybody can pop into chat GPT and write a blurb about how eco-friendly and how much you care about the earth, right? So folks are going to want to see that proof, like show me the factory, show me where you're getting these recycled products, show me how many water bottles go into this particular product, you know, show me the the proof. And it's obviously it's not just textual. It could be video, it could be audio, all the all the senses, right? However, however you can show it. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's I think where Prove It and Content Field Framework can kind of feed into one another is, you know, Prove It will help you figure out what are the claims that we're making that we need to back up. And then if you're looking for a way to how how could we back that up, then you've got Content Field Framework to come up with specific ideas. I want to move on to content fuel framework in a segment. Con- yeah. Content fuel framework just in in concept seems very broad. Prove it should be as broad because if content is important, trust should be important yeah. as well. I'm just curious though, the reception of, you know, CMOs, CEOs, executives. I know that some absolutely buy into it, but I'm assuming that maybe not everybody buys into trust being that critical of a KPI. Or maybe I'm wrong. What, what has been sort of the feedback that you've gotten? Um, have you had to sort of evangelize trust as a KPI or prove its value? to some that may not may not see it. And then how do you prove that value? Yeah. So I definitely practice what I preach and I've got plenty of data and experts that I can pull in quotes from Deloitte and studies that have been done about skepticism and consumer doubt and purchase likelihood and all those sorts of things. You got the Edelman trust barometer right there, right? I do. Yes, exactly. The Edelman trust barometer is featured prominently. So there's plenty of, of evidence that I can bring that says, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. Look, there's all this data that shows trust is important, but oftentimes if I get any sort of resistance, it's, it's kind of hard to say you don't want your consumers to trust you to be honest, so I don't get a ton of pushback. But the the question that I always, or the sort of the concept that I'll bring forth is, think of any KPI that is currently important to you. Is trust not necessary for that to happen? Because people don't buy from people they don't trust. They don't subscribe. They don't sign up, you know, schedule a call. They don't do any of that with people they don't trust. And so while I don't know that trust is its own KPI, it is sort of the precursor to most of the other KPIs that we already know are important. Makes a lot of sense. So yeah, like content is sort of part of everything you do. Yep. So should trust. Exactly. Yeah. Let's now go back a few years. I know we did it in reverse order <laughs> to to content fuel framework. And you know, you had described it before our our live stream here as a system for coming up with content ideas wherever you need to and inspiration for new topics, angles, and formats. It's a really eloquent summary of, of this, you know, obviously major work of art that you did. What is, you know, I guess one or two main takeaways for our, our listeners, our viewers, what are some of the key things that they can do if they're looking to create more engaging, creative and compelling content? What are one or two like major takeaways that you can yeah. talk about, you know, in depth to, to give uh, our, our readers a sense of, of why they should buy your book and why it's important to implement, you know, what you talk about? Yeah. So, I mean, couple couple different things to hit on there. So when we look at Content Fuel Framework, 
the sort of overarching theme is that most of the time we think of a content idea as like this single object, like, here you go, I have one idea for you. But actually, it's made up of two separate things that come together. So you have the focus, which is what are we talking about? What's the message, the topic, the theme, whatever word you choose, but what's our focus? And then you have the format, which is how are we going to bring this to life? How will people consume it? How will they experience it? So you have to actually ideate those two things separately. And I think that's kind of a, a mindset shift. But when you have that, it becomes a lot easier to come up with ideas because you're not trying to sort of eat the elephant in one bite. You know, you're sort of taking it step by step. And so if you think of that, that you have these two elements and then that you should always start with your focus and then determine which format is best to bring it to life. When you say format, are you talking these traditional, you know, video, audio, short form video, the, just the different? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, I walk through like 10 different formats as a source of in inspiration and they're all very platform agnostic. Um, you know, it's not with regards to how long it is. So, you know, video, live video, infographics, photos, maps, timelines, like there's lots of different options for you here of how you bring that content to life. And I think it's important to think about the merits of each of those and what they do well, what they don't do well, the advantages to using each particular format so you can make that right selection. So since you've wrote Content Field Framework, we've obviously seen the emergence and mainstream nature of short form video mm -hmm. as the other type of major format. Yeah. Maybe you covered that, maybe you didn't, but what would be your thoughts on what type of ideas yeah. are most relevant for that type of content? And we could talk about the differences between TikTok and Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts. We, I don't think we need to go that far, but you know, for those that are listening, like if you have this sort of idea, this tends to play better with this type of format. So I wish that there was a one size fits all answer, but I think it really depends on your audience, your industry, and what it is that you're trying to sell. Because the way you sell a service versus just a personal brand versus a physical product, the way you sell B2B or B2C, it really can can depend. What we do know is that live video and, and even short form video to some extent work really well for instructional content and for behind the scenes content. So walking people through a process or showing them, you know, whether it's how you do something, the, the get ready with me, we see all over the place, the makeup looks we see all over the place. So kind of walking people through processes tends to work really well. Gotcha. So you have the formats and then the idea. So, I mean, that's really the gist of, of your book is, is working on this ideation. Yep. What is, you know, outside of playing around with chat GPT and, and I, I think you'd probably recommend more creative, you know, human ways of, of doing the ideation yeah. uh, before that. But, you know, where do you think companies get stuck running out of content ideas? Is there in all of your work, is there like one area or one, one reason? And then how can, you know, our listeners overcome that? There's a couple, but I think they all kind of come under this same umbrella, which is um, when you have a culture where people are afraid to be wrong or to be laughed at or to make a mistake, it is very difficult for there to be any sort of innovation or new suggestions or out of the box thinking because people are afraid to move beyond those boundaries. So if you are feeling like you're not seeing a lot of innovation come out of, of your marketing team or your content team, that's something that as a leader, I would be looking into and acknowledging how am I, am I empowering them to try new things that may or may not work? Or have I created such a rigid results focused experience that they are afraid to take risks, to try new things, to branch out to new formats and so on. 
I'm curious uh, along those lines. So I've seen, for instance, Microsoft has something called an autonomous video booth. So any employee that wants to tell their story can go into the booth, get audio video recorded. It could be shared by the company, what have you. Yeah. Other companies have uh, worked on like employee advocacy training and they'll have like lunch and learns like, hey, you know, come in every Friday at lunch. We'll help you with your LinkedIn profile, take headshots, yeah. come up with like content ideas that, that you can share, right? I'm yeah. curious, is there a way to foster that sort of mindset do you know of any companies that are doing things to help foster that so that they do get more innovation and more out-of-the-box thinking out of their employees? That's a really good question, Neil. That's what my next book is going to be about. Um, <laughs> are you kidding me? That was going to be my next question for you. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> that well, that's is, going to preview then. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what I'm working on now is trying to figure out how do we create that culture, you know, individually within yourself, if you're a solopreneur or with a team making sure that you are thinking of new ideas, that creativity is something that's welcomed and embraced because it, you know, much like trust is a precursor for most business KPIs, creativity and, and that psychological safety that comes with it is sort of the, the basis for most of the innovation and, and important work that most of us do. So there's, there's a lot of different things uh, at the risk of going down a wormhole because I'm like, you know, living in studies and, and research right now. One of the biggest things is that psychological safety is making sure that you're fostering that community of like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to fail. It's why we see a lot of innovation come out of startups because they do have that, that fail fast mentality. We try all kinds of things. We're scrappy, you know, willing to experiment and take risk. You kind of got to foster some of that, that same psychological safety. So your employees aren't afraid to be fired or reprimanded or written up or whatever the case may be for trying something new. Yeah, that's really interesting. I can't wait to read that book. And I think it it <laughs> talks a lot to, I was on a, a SEMrush webinar this morning yeah. and we were talking about the importance of data. It was like the CMO roundtable, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I made the argument, if you really want to have a, I know this goes, I mean, this is a different field than, than what you're in in terms of like content, but if you really want to have a data-driven culture, then everybody should be speaking that data-driven language. Decisions should be made based on the data. So if you expect that of everyone around you, and when someone asks you, hey, can we do this? If you say, well, what does the data tell us? If you instill that culture, it, it can happen, right? And I'm thinking with your book as well, it, it's probably going to start at the top, right? But yeah. it, in a similar way, there are activities, exercises, things that you could do 100%. to instill that culture. And, and you know, I'm sure it's going to be written in detail in the book. So <laughs> can't wait to read that. It, it is so necessary. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, there have been other books about innovation, what have you, yeah. but not with that objective in mind. So yeah. that's going to be awesome. There's uh, as a little snippet. So for anyone who wants to try, one of the best things you can do is is try random inspiration. So let's you have to have your objective first. We're trying to come up with content ideas for our new campaign, our new product, this upcoming event. You have to have sort of your your objective figured out. But one of the best ways to experiment and, and be okay with big ideas uh, is to create a rule that there's no feedback unless it's positive for the first portion of your brainstorm. And then you come back around. So you want to do that divergent thinking. You want to think differently without with that psychological safety, not afraid of having a crazy idea, a silly idea. And then you come around and you go through that list and call it down to what you think would actually work because that the if you are in that headspace of trying to come up with big new ideas any sort of sort of criticism negativity here's why that won't work kind of tells everyone else in the room like don't speak up or you're going to get swatted down too so segmenting between this is our brainstorming time this is our divergent thinking time and then this is our convergent thinking time where we're going to come back together and work through the options that we have very cool. Very, very exciting to see your journey really from from the content to yeah. the bigger issue of trust through the bigger issue of 
of everyone's real creativity and innovation. So yeah. when can we expect to, uh, I assume you're still working on the manuscript, so there's no published date for it, right? There is no published date yet. Um, I would assume sometime in 2024, but you know, that assumes that I stay on top of my deadlines. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know, I was going to ask you about what are your future plans? You've already responded to that. So are there any <laughs> other, you know, things that you've done research on or that you're writing about or just, you know, uh, questions from speaking or clients yeah. just about this topic of sort of content ideation and, and content marketing? Uh, any further advice you can give the listeners? Yeah, I think the the one thing that is really important, just no matter if you're, again, a solopreneur or you're on a team, is you have to be willing to get things wrong. And I know that's like very uncomfortable for a lot of us, but as these new platforms come out, as these new tools launch, like there's a learning curve. It takes time to figure out how to create content that works really well on TikTok or how to create content that, you know, how to use the right prompts for chat GPT. It's not going to be a hundred percent day one. And so as long as you're as an individual willing to, willing to not know everything for a little bit, um, and as a team or as an organization willing to allow your people to not know everything, you're going to get the absolute most out of those tools much more so than someone who's kind of created this strict culture against failure. Break things and move fast, right? Yep. And, exactly. and I, I, I love the fact you're going to talk about in the book, the, the innovations that come from startups where they, and I talk about this a lot because startups have no legacy. And when it comes to like digital marketing, there, there's no legacy at all. They can just go yeah. out and do anything they want. And if everybody yeah. had that sort of reset button that freedom. They push every day, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a freedom. And I think it can be really powerful if we can hopefully help people figure out how to harness it. Absolutely. Well, Melanie, you know, I, I'm thinking back to my days of studying English and, you know, vigorous writing is concise and you have been just so concise in all of your answers today and in our conversation. So thank you for providing us all that advice. Obviously, Prove It Content Fuel Framework are available wherever fine books are sold. Where else can people go to learn more about you and engage with you? Yeah. So my website is storyfuel.co. So story, F-U-E-L, just like contentfuel.co. And that's where you can find everything about the books, working with me, bringing me in to speak, or just find my social links if you want to follow me wherever you like to hang out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Melanie, for breathing a fresh breath of air into this world of, of content uh, and content marketing and, and digital marketing as a whole. So can't wait to uh, get your next book and hopefully we'll be able to meet in person at a, at a conference in the not so distant future. I hope so. Yeah, that was a fun and really inspirational interview. I hope you got a lot out of that conversation like I did. And at a minimum, that you'll go out and check out her book's Content Fuel Framework if you haven't already bought it and her more recent book, Prove It. Speaking of books, did you know that I offer a number of free resources? A lot of these are eBooks uh, on my own website. If you go to neilschafer.com slash freebies, that's F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S, you'll be able to access all of the free resources that I have for you so that I can better serve you both not only on the podcast, but off the podcast as well. Well, that is it for another exciting episode of the Your Digital Marketing Coach podcast. I look forward to serving you again next week. Until then, this is your digital marketing coach, Neil Schaefer, signing off. You've been listening to Your Digital Marketing Coach. Questions, comments, requests? Links? Go to podcast.neilshafer.com. Get the show notes to this and 200 plus podcast episodes and neilshafer.com to tap into the 400 plus blog posts that Neil has published to support your business. While you're there, check out Neil's digital first group coaching membership community if you or your business needs a little helping hand. See you next time on Your Digital Marketing Coach.